If you have uh, your Bibles with you, uh, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts 27. If you don't, it's okay. We'll have Scripture up here in a moment. But I uh, just want to encourage you to turn uh, there. For those of you that were able to attend the, the uh, Celebration of Life service for Sarah Beth, I just want to encourage you to keep Tim and Jen Welch in prayer, uh, just as they uh, continue to, um, to grieve the loss of their daughter. And so just want to encourage you to be in prayer for them as a family this morning. Um, but I want us to think for a moment about uh, trials. And what I mean is last week we looked at Acts 26, and we, we saw that there was an importance to persevering for the sake of Christ. Well, this week, as we move into chapter 27, we're going to actually see how we persevere, how we walk with an anchored foundation in the midst of storms. You ever had a storm in your life or a trial in your life that just seemed like it wouldn't end? Maybe there is no end to the trial. Maybe it's one that it actually doesn't seem like there's going to be an end, and maybe the end will come at the end of our lives. For others, maybe that storm is something that is a season of, uh, of just what I would call piling on, right? You kind of come to that place where you're like, Lord, I've had enough, frankly, right? Uh, how much more, right? I don't know if you guys have had that same question before, but that, that question that arises where you're like, Lord, how much more can you put on? I don't think there's a whole lot more that you can. And then you realize there is right? So Paul is in this kind of same spot. And it's an interesting passage here as we kind of near the end of Acts. And it's actually fun as we're coming to the end of Acts. We've broken this book up into basically three different times that we've gone through the text. But if you recall, we started in Acts chapter 1, the very first Sunday that we became Redemption Hill Church. And we went through the first 10 chapters, and then we took uh, about a year off from it, and then we came back, and then we took another season off of it, and then we came back to it. And now we're, we're back to it in its finality as we wrap up Acts 28 next week. But along the way, God has shown us how he's formed his church, how he has built his church, how he's grown his church. And he's given us a picture of what the servant of God looks like. How God both protects his church and protects his servant. That he actually protects the message, the gospel. And it's amazing if we think back to Acts about all that has occurred. And then we come to chapter 27. And we see this long narrative about this storm. In fact, it actually seems like, uh, what does this really have to do with anything? I can go and read a news article or a magazine and get details about a storm, but what does this have to actually do with me and a sovereign God? Well, I think in part what God is revealing through his, his text here is that storms are unpredictable. 
And some storms are extremely lengthy. And in many storms, just when you think it's over, it gets worse. And then it seems to get better, and then it seems to get worse. And in the end, even the finality of the storm doesn't seem all that gracious. Basically, it's like saying, well, I want to let you know that uh, you got knocked around a little bit. You've got about five nails hanging outside the head, but you're still alive. You should be okay. But you're okay. And the point being that the storms of our life seldom are wrapped up with a pretty nice, neat little bow. Because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is broken by sin. And the representative of Jesus Christ is actually his church in the midst of this brokenness. And it's hope in the midst of brokenness that actually declares and screams and shouts the glory of God. So this morning we're going to look at this idea of being anchored in the storm. And where we anchor our hope matters. We're going to be looking at this text in a couple ways. We're not going to go through all of it like last week. We're going to do it in chunks and pieces and parts. And so we're going to go and we're going to look specifically here at the beginning and read through the passage here of Acts chapter 27 verses 1 through 20. And so I won't have you stand this morning as we read this, but I would ask that you would follow along. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 and then we're going to be picking up each of those sections as we move through the text. And this is what it says. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Admetium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy, and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. 
And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in the majority, decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Let's pray. Lord God, open our eyes to your truth this morning. May we be emboldened in your hope. May we be emboldened in the midst of trials, in the midst of storms, to hold fast, to take heart, to be of courage because of your promises and because of your providence. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So at the center of this passage is the idea that taking heart in life's storms anchors our courage and faith to God's salvation, or excuse me, to God's promises and providence. Taking heart in life's storms anchors our courage in faith to God's promises and providence. We become anchored in God's promises and God's providence. So real quickly, what is providence? It's God's sovereign will to work out and bring about his plan. It is the fact that he's saying, in essence, there's nothing that can stop my plan. It's not simply that he's ruler over all. It is, it is that he oversees all and that his plan cannot be thwarted. So his providence is at work. It gives us confidence in who God really is. That he is the one that directs, that guides, that leads. Now, here's what's happened. Paul, who has been imprisoned wrongly. In fact, last week we saw that both Festus, along with Bernice and King Agrippa, all see that he was not worthy of punishment or death. They see that he really is not guilty, and yet he's been imprisoned, and he's still being sent to Rome because they had no authority once he appealed to Caesar to change his direction. And so they put him on a boat heading for Rome, for Italy. Now we can see the twists and turns, right? Imagine this, you're innocent, you're stuck on a ship, we're not talking, you know, modern day ships today. We know from this text that this ship was overloaded with 276 people, right? So our, our idea of ship is a little warped when we think of passenger ships today have between 2,500 and 3,000 people on board. This is a ship that's overloaded as 276 people. It's, it's kind of like a bay cruiser. And they're out in the ocean and they're moving along at the mercy of the winds. And we're told that as they move along, that along the way, the winds were against them. And where they sailed was they sailed in these, these what they called leaves or these areas, these protected areas where the wind was not fighting against them. And they would try to find these areas of, of protected covering to sail under. But we're told that they sailed slowly for a number of months, and they arrived with difficulty. So what started out as a journey that was supposed to be hopeful and direct and fast 
became one that was slow and difficult. Ever been there in your life? Where what you were expecting was radically different than what you got? Ever trudged through something where you feel like it's just never ending? This is like the worst traffic jam on water. I remember in the heyday of the dot-com boom and living in the East Bay but commuting to the South Bay. From my front door to the door of my office was 46 miles. It was two and a half hours every morning to get to the office. And generally three back home. That's going a whole lot slower than desired or expected. Right? They're on this ship. It's the worst slowdown that they've ever been on. It says they're coasting along with difficulty. And we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Now it's taken them so long that they've come to the end of summer. And it tells us here that the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. The fast that's most likely being spoken of here is the Day of Atonement celebrations that would have taken place on October 5th. Between September and November, those specific areas were considered the dangerous season to sail. After that, they did no sailing in the waters until springtime. The sailing stopped usually until March. Paul is telling them at this point, listen, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, what's unique about this is Paul's already been shipwrecked three times. You'd think that they would listen. Uh, Sirs, I've seen this movie before, right? But it says that the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. We're told that because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, and on chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Actually, what was moving them was not necessarily what was prudent and safe, but what was moving them was just the the need to get out of what they perceived as danger. Sometimes we try to rush out of things rather than waiting in them. And when we rush out of them, we do more damage than good. And the truth is that that's what happens in this passage. And that is often what happens in our suffering. It's often what happens in our storms. So then notice what happens here in verse 13 through 20, and I'll read this for us. It says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempest wind called the northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supporters to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. 
Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, what's interesting in this, this boat is being tossed. This is no small storm. So think about this just for a second. We've seen pictures of boats that have been tossed in a storm. Now, this storm is tossing them so badly, remember that the, the, the boat's not made of metal, right? It's made of wood. When they're talking about lowering the undergirding, what they're talking about is that undergirding on, on boats was actually ropes that went around the sides of the boats, and they were used to tighten the wood planks on the boats so that it would not leak. This boat is being battered from side to side that's beginning to take on water, and they're trying to tighten down the wood to keep it afloat. So not only are in this storm, but there's also this chance for sinking, not just sinking in the, the, because the waves are too large, but sinking because the boat begins to fall apart. They're trying to salvage the boat that they're in, and they can do nothing. And we're told that they're then just driven along by the storm, driven along by the waves. They're at the mercy of the storm. The truth is they're not at the mercy of the storm. They're at the mercy of God. And we're told that they're hopeless. Ever been a storm where you just feel hopeless? Where you really feel discouraged and you're resolved to what is happening and hope is lost? Well, Paul has an opportunity to feel that way. And yet, we see here that while they're hopeless, Paul is doing something different. His confidence is not in whether the ship is going to hold together. And his confidence is not in whether the storm is going to go away. And so verse 21 says, Since they've been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. What does Paul do? I mean, it seems initially like he's taking a shot, right? You guys should have listened to me. We're in the midst of this problem. You guys, I was right. You were wrong. See, we're, we're stuck. But actually what he's saying is, listen, my confidence is in something different. And I want you to know that what God had revealed to me is something that you need to know. And so what we see here is he tells them to take heart. He says, Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. 
Then he tells him again, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So what does it mean to take heart? Well, it literally means to take courage, to become encouraged, or to be of good cheer. So taking heart is nothing more than joyful courage. Joyful courage. It's courage that is rooted in God that says, yes, I can find joy even in the midst of this, and I'm not going to fear. And so he's telling them, have joyful courage. But he's not telling them to have joyful courage that's rooted in self He's actually going to lay out why you can have joyful courage, why you can take heart, why you can be courageous and yet walk with joy. I think there are a lot of people that can have courage in the midst of storms. But seldom, apart from Jesus, that has manifest joy. It's our joy that strengthens and renews us in courage. And that courage in Christ is actually what builds our joy. Do you know how you respond when you're afraid? I know for me, I get short. It's clear. Paul's saying here is, let your joy be known. You can still have joy. And your joy is a part of your courage. It's found not in yourself, but in me. Matthew Henry captures the essence of taking heart when he says, God is ever faithful, and therefore let all that have an interest in his promise be ever cheerful. If God, with, excuse me, if God is saying and doing not two things, then with us believing in a joy should not be. So if saying and doing are not two things or are not separate things, then believing and enjoying should not be separate things. Believing and enjoyment or believing and joy go hand in hand. If we believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that God will bring about his purposes, if we believe that our redemption sits in the hands of God, we can have joy and be courageous. So what are the anchors for taking heart in the midst of life's storms then? Well, Paul lays that out for us. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship for this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Notice how Paul refers to God. He says, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. In the midst of the storm, Paul has not forgotten his position in Christ. That he belongs to Christ. That he is Christ. The one that is holding him, that's holding him up, that's, that's keeping him, is Christ. There is nothing else keeping him apart from Jesus. It's an acknowledgement that he's not been discarded, but rather he's been purchased by Christ through no fault, small fee, through the work of the cross. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You belong to Jesus. He's the one keeping you. He is the one that's holding you. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but, you've been, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm going to tell you guys, I have a fly that is moving around me a lot, so I apologize. If you see me swiping, it's been on my head and to the side. Um, so I, I share that with you, that I'm fighting a distraction, and um, Lord, we, we just come before you, because Lord, your word needs to be focused and clear. So we pray against distractions this morning, God. We pray for your power, for your spirit. to move and to work in each of our hearts to prevent those distractions, to bind any kind of work of the enemy in the name of Jesus and to cling to the truth of your word. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So it is that we are sons of God. Paul remembers that he's an heir. He has the full rights that have been given to him as a son of Jesus, as a son of God. That's awesome. The arsenal that he has at hand is far greater than anything that's in this world. I don't know if you guys have ever gone to an air show, but if you've gone to an air show and there are military demonstration teams out there. It is fascinating and humbling to watch. And what has stuck out to me is that as they, they show how these attack jets will come in and, and support troops on the ground, the sheer sound of this jet coming towards you is terrifying. And the immense power behind it is overwhelming. That doesn't even hold a small flicker of a flame to what God brings to bear on our behalf. As heirs to him, not simply as citizens of a nation, but as citizens of heaven, as childs or children of God, we have access to all of which God is providing. That's what Paul's saying here. I belong to God. I belong to him. And my confidence is in him. Now, his reliance isn't just simply rooted in his position with Christ, but it's also rooted in his purpose in Christ. He says there about this aspect of whom I belong and whom I worship. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul knew that God was with him, that Christ was with him. That was promised when he commissioned his church to go out, was that Christ would be with him to the end of the age. And he was committed in worship. What he's saying here is my life is no longer my own. It is Christ. So not only is he, he the one that I belong to, and not only has he purchased me, and not only am I his, but I am now created for his purpose. I worship him. I lay down my life for him And so whatever it takes, I'm here. Do we feel that way in trials? Do we feel that way in life storms that whatever you may bring, God, I am here to be your servant? Some of you guys know Joni Erickson Tata, who, you know, as a a late high school student became paralyzed. She's had a tremendous, impactful ministry. God has used her in the midst of this lifetime of a body that does not work. And she talks about that aspect of coming to that day where she says, God still has a purpose for me. Do we run from God's providence? Do we run from life's storms, or do we see that God has a purpose in life's storms? It's easy to despair, isn't it? Isn't it easy to become hopeless? But the promise that God has given you is you are positionally Him if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You belong to Him. And as a worshiper of God, Your life is no longer your own, but it is his, for his glory. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Storms are one of the best places to be reminded that we are God's, that we belong to Him. And it's one of the best places to see our heart towards worship. Are we really willing to lay it down for His sake? The second aspect then of being anchored, taking heart. The first is to remember our position and purpose in Christ. The second is to discern and listen to godly counsel. Discern and listen to godly counsel. It says here in verse 27, when the 14th night had come as we were driving across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. 
So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. What did they do? They stopped. In the midst of the storm, they stopped. They were worried that they were going to run aground. They stopped and they waited. Now, in the middle of this waiting, those who knew how to sail want to get off the boat. They're trying to get out. And Paul says, listen, all that's being left then are the prisoners and the soldiers. Now, I I will tell you that my response would probably be a whole lot less gracious. Sailors are trying to get off the boat. I'm the soldier. You're a dead man. Right? Or you're at least going to pay. But what do they do? They cut the boat away. And they cut the boat away because Paul says that unless they stay, unless they stay, we'll all perish. And the beauty of what happens here is the centurion listens to Paul, the prisoner. Why? Because Paul had previously warned them against coming, telling them that the the journey would be too dangerous. Then he speaks to them and he says, hey, listen, I want you to know it sounds crazy. But none of you are going to be harmed. And the centurion, without questioning, cuts the boat away. In Proverbs 12, verse 15, it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. In Proverbs 19, 20, it says, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. In life's storms, we are prone to making poor choices. And usually they're motivated by getting out of the storm. These sailors wanted out of their perilous condition and were willing to leave everyone else behind. And that's what happens when we walk through life's storms without the godly counsel and wisdom of others. It's what happens when we isolate Some of you have experienced that, where you find yourself discouraged and all you want to do is be alone. It's the responsibility of brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage you not to be alone and to invade your space. It really is. Because it is in that isolation that we are most prone to our own destruction. God desires us to listen to counsel that is wise and godly. It means that we seek counsel that's not being driven necessarily by the world, but is being driven by his word. And we need to listen to those that discern well. God has placed discerners amongst to protect his church 
And then third, the first is to remember our position and purpose. The second is to discern and listen to godly counsel. The third is to commune with God through his word and others. Commune with God through his word and others. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Notice what happens here. It says, As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Paul's confidence is actually in the word. In the word that he was received, that had been revealed to him. Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. He's clinging to God's promises. When we're going through life's storms, God's promises have to be at the center of our anchoring. We have to commune with God. And we get discouraged. It's easy, isn't it, to just go and check out mentally? I'd just rather watch something on TV. I just want to be myself. Let me sleep. We need to be diving into the Word of God, communing with God in His Word. And the imagery that's being used here is actually an imagery of the the table, the communion table that's being offered up He's actually telling us here in this passage that, it's, it's, that communion also involves communion with others. Meaning that as we walk through these storms, we need to be present with others as well. It is why we need the fellowship in the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 20 through 25 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God has given us the body of Christ as an encouragement. One of the hardest things about COVID is that there has been a need at times to be away. But our fear should never separate us from the communion with the body of Christ. God has given communion with one another for the purpose of strengthening us in the midst of storms. To carry us and push us and encourage us in righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the well-known preachers of the, the early 20th century. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones was a renowned cardiologist in England. He actually was the cardiologist to the queen or to the royalty in England. As a part of that group, Martin Lloyd-Jones was growing in his faith. And in that growth, at 23, he was this renowned cardiologist. 23. His specialty was heart valve infections in a day where it was very difficult to diagnose and figure out. By the age of 29, he was completely done with medicine. And he went into ministry. And the reason he went into ministry in his words were, I was simply saving people to die an eternal death. Now, we need doctors, right? We have come to a place where often we value this life more than we value our life in Christ. And when that happens... Fear will often overtake us. There's wisdom that we need to walk in. There's a listening to the Spirit that needs to occur in walking in that. But one of my great fears is that we've moved to a place where communing with others is actually a source of fear rather than a source of encouragement. When that happens, that's not of God. It has always been the Christians that have gone into the places that others won't because their confidence is not in the things of this world, but it is in the confidence of Jesus. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, during the the great fevers in London, would talk about that the only ones that were ministering to the sick on the streets were the believers. And there were times, yes, they died. But in so doing, they displayed the love of Jesus in a way that was so contrary to the rest of the world. We're to draw near to God. First and foremost. And we are to commune in his word and we are commune with one another. James 4, 6 through 10 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then the hope, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is where Paul's at. 
He's come to the place that his confidence is in Christ. And whatever he does, it'll be Christ who exalts him. So we remember our position and purpose. We discern and listen to godly counsel. We commune with God through his word and others. And finally, the result of this, the resulting hope, is that God's providential protection of his will and his remnant allows others to experience his grace. That actually God's providential protection of his will and his remnant allows others to experience his grace. We are not to presume upon God's mercy. Romans 2, 3 through 5 says, Do you suppose, O man, who you judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What he's saying here is this. As a result of God's providence... And the providential protection of his will and of his remnant. That there are others who do not know Jesus that actually experience a common grace. They actually get to taste. They have the aroma of who Christ is. And if you've had the aroma of who Christ is, but you haven't repented and believed on Christ... This is an encouragement not to presume upon God's mercy. Just because you may be experiencing his blessing does not mean that you are his. And he's so he's saying here, it is through my remnant, through the faithful ones, that grace is displayed to the world. It is the reason in Sodom and Gomorrah where he said, if I can find 50, or I can find 40, or I can find 30, or I can find 20. And as a church, we need to understand that while we look at a nation or we look at a state which seems to have a smaller and smaller portion of those who confess Christ as Lord, God is still working. And he's always done his work through a faithful remnant. He has never done it through the entirety of a nation believing in him. Even Israel didn't all believe in him. It's always been through the remnant. And we need to come to a place where we go, yes, God's providence is at work. His will is still going forth and still moving forth. And he will protect it. He will see to it that it's done. And he will use you and I. And whether that's me amongst 50 or whether that's us among 50,000, he's still working. And that's how he's purposed it. And it's for his glory. And we should not be discouraged because God has always changed people through his remnant. And he's blessed those in kindness who have rejected him through his remnant. You see, it's actually the blessing going forth to his remnant that actually the world gets to feel. Matthew Henry says, God often spares wicked people for the sake of the godly. As Zoar for Lot's sake and as Sodom might have been if there had been 10 righteous persons in it. 
The good people are hated and persecuted in the world as if they were not worthy to live in it. Yet really, it is for their sakes that the world stands. Matthew Henry did not write that in 2021. He wrote that over 100 years ago. That truth still remains today. As a church, don't be discouraged when you stand in a culture that doesn't seem to follow Christ. Because God has placed you as the remnant in it for his sake. And God is using you as his remnant. In your storms, he is working. Remember your position. Remember your purpose in Christ. Seek out and discern, hear, listen to the godly counsel that's provided, not the platitudes which are easy. And then commune with God. And find your strength in communing with Christ in the confidence that he is providentially working out his will and protecting his remnant to display his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can stand firm and boldly in your grace. Thank you that life's storms can be thrown at us and you've shown us that there is a way out and it is not in ourselves but is in you. And God, when we are in those storms, may we draw closer to you rather than pull away and to find a way off the boat. But may we endure as you've called us to do. So God, may your church be powerful. May it be empowered by your spirit. May it be a church that is marked by joyful courage. And may our hope be rooted and grounded in you, knowing that you are using a faithful remnant to display your grace. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.